My daughter recently brought three books home from the library. Moby Dick, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and The Grapes of Wrath. Her voluntary proactive choosing of these classics of American literature as worthy reading gave me great joy. I felt joy because I think wrestling with the larger themes and ideas in good literature is central to our ability as humans to think, to discuss, and to engage with the complexity around us. Although I'm a professor in a business school, I see great value in the humanities. So does Matt Jordan. He's the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Dean and Chair for the Humanities at Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland, Ohio. He holds a PhD in philosophy from The Ohio State University and has previously held many roles as a faculty member and administrator at various institutions. He is also the president-elect of the Mideast Honors Association, and he's a frequent guest on the Three Questions, Three Drinks podcast with Chris Michael A. He joined us to talk about the purpose of higher education and, more specifically, about the value of the humanities. We talked about living the good life, being a thoughtful person, how the humanities can foster civil discourse, and so much more. Stay tuned for a delightfully insightful conversation with Matt Jordan. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Matt Jordan, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yes! Finally, we get somebody from the humanities in here that can kick some serious <laughs> keister. You know, that's what that's what humanities educators are known for. Actually, is the <laughs> just the the attack mindset. Uh, it, it's kind of the most distinctive feature of the whole network of disciplines. I know. You look at me. It's like, why aren't these guys in the octagon? Instead, they're wearing cardigans and sitting in bus. You know dusty tome shelves it's you know? only it's the uh, elbow patches they can't you don't get the same flexibility that you need to really do serious <laughs> mixed martial arts so. <laughs> awesome so today's gonna be great um you know having matt on here as an expert in the humanities uh, provides us with this opportunity to talk about uh, what the humanities even encompasses. What what are we talking about when we talk about the humanities? And we're going to talk about why everyone should care about the humanities. And then, you know, if that's not your background, if that's not where you're coming from, how a person might start their journey toward learning a little bit more about the humanities and making it something that benefits them personally and maybe even professionally and elsewhere. Um, and, and this really ties into a whole bunch of different topics. And you know, one thing that comes to my mind when we talk about the humanities in general is that, you know, the humanities sometimes get used as this example of something that doesn't directly lead to jobs and that, you know, in higher education, we're supposed to be uh, manufacturing employees. And, uh, you know, and I teach at a business school, but I have serious issues with that entire idea of the fact that we're trying to only create people who are ready for an occupation. I think there's a lot more to higher education. And I don't know, maybe we could kind of start there and see where we go. But I think it'd be great to hear a little bit of your thoughts on, you know, what what is higher education even for? And maybe kind of how the humanities fit into all of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge uh, question, uh, uh, but it's certainly an appropriate place to start. And I, I mean, one thing you can say right off the bat is that higher ed per se isn't necessarily for one particular thing, right? Uh, and there are different kinds of institutions that have different kinds of missions. Uh, and I think that that's a, a good thing. I don't think there's one uniquely correct way to understand what a college is or should be. But insofar as there is kind of one overarching purpose, um, I, I think the main issue at least if we're talking about you know public colleges and universities, the main issue is to um, form a citizen a citizenry that's uh, that can function in a pluralistic democratic republic, right? Um, 
so like I used to, I used to be a philosophy professor. Uh, I was down in Alabama for a long time and I taught elsewhere as well, but I was at Auburn university at Montgomery. And uh, as a philosophy professor, I teach my one-on-one classes. And I was keenly aware that most of the students who were signing up for these classes were not there because they were so passionate about philosophy. They were there because it met a general education requirement and it was a convenient time of day for them to take that particular requirement. So it wasn't because you were an easy professor. No, it was not. In fact, I, I was very proud of the fact that I, I was rated as a difficult professor. Um, so you, you can check my rate my professor ratings uh, on uh, <laughs> online and see that I, I was both considered an entertaining professor and a challenging one, which is a rare combo and something I'm still proud of. I also got a few chili, chili peppers through the years, which yes. is really what ratemyprofessor.com is all about. Totally. <laughs> um, but I would, I would have to start the semester by trying to make the case that what we were doing wasn't just a big waste of time. And one of the things that I would point to is, is different views of what education is all about. And I used to quote, and I'll, I'll see, um, uh, I figured this would come up today, and I intentionally did not look this up, okay? So if I can get this from memory, I get bonus points on this uh, on this podcast episode. But I was really struck when I was an undergrad at Ohio U and was starting to think about a career in higher education by a quote that's etched in stone on the college green down in Athens, Ohio. And it comes from the ordinance of 1787, which is, you know, kind of giving the uh, the rationale for institutions of public education in the fledgling United States of America. Um, you know, back when, when Ohio was, was the Western Reserve, right? It was this sort of like frontier country. Um, and they're building these cities, right? Called Athens and Oxford and places like that, right? Um, so from the ordinance of 1787, uh, on the college green at Ohio U, it states in stone, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good governments and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means to education shall forever be encouraged, right? It's a great line. And what's fascinating is it, it says nothing about enhancing people's ability to, uh, to make a living, right? Or, or, <laughs> or giving them, you know, highly useful job skills. It says um, for, um, for the sake of self-government and the happiness of mankind, right? Because if you're going to have a democracy – then maybe you don't need everybody to be like super educated, but you need citizens who can think a little bit, right? Who can, who understand the human experience, who've wrestled with big questions about justice, who have a sense for what's gone before us and what kinds of things have worked and what haven't and what sort of traps we're likely to encounter. Um, and that other phrase, the happiness of mankind, right? This idea, and, and this is where I really, uh, what I think is so crucial, the idea that the intellectual life, um, that the, the life of learning, the life of the mind um, is available to virtually everybody. And it really is a source of fulfillment. It's, it's part of what it is to live well as a human being is to actually think and reflect uh, and engage with ideas. So uh, that would at least be my initial stab at an answer. It's not to say there's anything wrong with somebody who goes to college to get a, a degree and, and get a job later. And, you know, I've got thoughts on that too, but I, I think we could reframe our view of higher education in ways that would be good for all of us. Yeah. But who would pay for that? It's a you fair know? question. Yeah. Be because you think it's like, wait a minute, I'm going to give you some money and I'm going to come out thinking massively in debt and... <laughs> Maybe not with the best job, although the job statistics, if you can just get any degree, I don't care if it's an underwater ancient Sumerian pottery, <laughs> right? You, you're, you could start as an assistant manager at Wendy's, possibly, right? Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. That's right. So it's a great question. And I would certainly never encourage anybody to um, take on massive amounts of, of debt, right? But, but there's two things that come immediately to mind here. I mean, one is... It's interesting how we tend to approach these things because because we don't bat an eye at paying um, very very uh, you know expensive prices for say healthcare um, or um, you know for really great television. And well, we mind we just don't have a choice on the healthcare front. <laughs> well, but we do. Right, you could choose not to get it. Right, and and that's that's kind of my point. We say. You know, you're not getting a return on investment in the sense that spending that money at your doctor's office is going to get you more money later, um, or most of the, the goods that we purchase. And I understand how the how the market works, but my my point is that to some degree, 
we get conditioned into some of these attitudes, right? We, we do have a conception that part of what it is to live a, uh, a, a good life in America in the 21st century is to have a, a car with, you know, a leather interior and a heated steering wheel. And it's to have a TV that's at least 56 inches across, right? Um, and this is kind of our picture, even though upon reflection, we realize you know, those things aren't really that necessary to my happiness. And yet you know, we're, we're conditioned in a manner to want them. And I think, it, by the way, I'm not going to suggest that that I'm capable of changing the market forces that are out there. <laughs> but I think you can at least conceive of a world where people simply say, oh, yeah, you know, that actually is worthwhile. That is something that's that's worth having, worth pursuing. But that's the sort of idealistic side, Chris, of, of the my response to that that challenge. The other is to say, you don't have to go into debt um, to have the you know the full fledged college experience and, and engage with the intellectual life. In my case, you know, I'm, I'm a dean of humanities at Cuyahoga Community College in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And we have um, a really robust humanities curriculum. Uh, and in the case of the, not only is, is the college itself the, I, I can say on behalf of our institution, though this is not a paid commercial, the lowest tuition in the state of Ohio. Um, but uh, students in the program that I oversee, the, the Jack Joseph Morton Mandel Scholars Academy, they get a full tuition scholarship to earn their associate degree, right? Um, and then there's lots of, of great opportunities for them to go on, in some cases, with additional scholarships. We just sent a student to Stanford last year on a full tuition and housing scholarship. Um, we have partnerships with Cleveland State University, uh, Case Western Reserve University, uh, and that's just one example. But I mean, there's lots of ways to <laughs> to go to college without taking on tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. So there's that. <laughs> there's also the fact that you, know, you, you don't uh, necessarily have to go to college in order to engage with the humanities. And that's, you know, a whole nother set of issues. But Yeah. So I want to come back to something you mentioned kind of obliquely a couple of times. You, you mentioned the good life. You, and, you know, here on the Indigo podcast, we're very concerned with the, uh, the, the flourishing of humans at work mm -hmm. and beyond. And it, it reminds me, you're talking about, you know, how we oftentimes seek this in other types of things in life, um, be they material things or whatever. And, you know, I'm reminded of a, a quote, or I'll, I'll be paraphrasing, it won't be a direct quote, from Adam Smith, who, of course, is oftentimes considered the father of modern economics and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ultimate capitalist in some people's minds, right? Because he, he wrote The Wealth of Nations and so forth. But, uh, you know, he, he also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in the theory of moral sentiments, one of the ideas that he um, promotes and that he argues for is the idea that, you know, man desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Hmm. And meaning that, you know, we we want to be admired by people. We want people's respect, but we also want to deserve it. And then yeah. he suggests yeah. that there are two paths toward being loved and lovely. One of those being fame and fortune, and the other being wisdom and virtue. And mm -hmm. then he makes the argument that the path toward wisdom and virtue is ultimately the better one. And it's just an interesting thing coming from Adam Smith, right? And I'm wondering how you might react to that idea and this idea, you know, maybe how humanities might fit into uh, that type of quest. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think it absolutely does fit in. Um, I, I'm reminded of a uh, of an argument I used to to uh, challenge my philosophy 101 students to think about, right? When when we would um, talk about the idea, uh, very similar what what Smith is getting at there, and one you can find at least as far back as the ancient Greeks that says, what it is to live well is to live a virtuous life. And and I would kind of lay this scenario before him. I'd say, look, suppose that that the devil comes to you. I used to say, suppose that God comes to you. This seems more like something the devil would do. Suppose the devil comes to you and says, hey, you're going to have one child and you have to make a choice. You have to choose life A or life B for your child. In life A, your child is going to have an easy, pleasurable life. Um, they're going to have a lot of success. You know, they're going to have at least some, you know, friendships with people and so on. But Here's the catch. When push comes to shove, he's going to grow up to be a terrible human being. And then in life B, your kid is going to have a hard life. There's going to be, you know, a lifelong struggle to make ends meet. There's going to be sadness. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be challenges. But at his core, he's going to grow up to be a genuinely good human being. And you have to pick which life do you want for your kids. 
And I've, I've surveyed probably, I don't know, hundreds of undergrads in that kind of what philosophers call a thought experiment. Um, and I think it's been over 95% of people, maybe 98% through the years who've said, if I had to make that choice, it's life B, right? Um, that really is what life is about, is what kind of person we are. And so when it comes to the humanities more broadly, like when we're talking about disciplines that aren't just philosophy, but literature, uh, the fine arts, history, uh, the study of languages, all of these things that we consider the, the humane disciplines, what we're putting before students is an invitation to a life that involves more self-reflection. It involves deeper thinking, um, maybe a, a more contemplative approach to big questions, the ability to discern what's a good argument, what's a bad argument, uh, to, to separate the wheat from the chaff when, you know, advertisers and, and talk show radio hosts are, 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 are you know, yelling at us. Um, and I think when you start to look at, like, what does it look like to be the kind of person who has, in fact, been immersed in the humanities versus the kind of person who's just, you know, the sort of natural product of a, a shallow and superficial age like ours. And I don't mean that unkindly. I, I think it's the reality. We, we are not a nation of deep contemplative thinkers, right? We, we love to be highly stimulated in intense, quick, surfacey sorts of ways. And I think when you really step back and you look at, well, here's these two lives, which one do you want for yourself? Um, I, I think the the life of the of the mind, and again, that's to say the life of the mind isn't to say, you know, becoming a professional scholar. It's being a thoughtful person, right? Who who asks good questions and who engages with different perspectives and so on. I think that's that's a life that nearly everyone will agree is speaks for itself. It's an attractive way to live. It's an attractive way to be. Yeah. So two things on that. One, you know. Not that I'm knocking getting degrees because any degree, the the data shows you're going to make more cash, right? Mm -hmm. If you put your mind to actually, now, if you try to get into that one job at the Smithsonian and Sumerian Pottery, it may already be fulfilled, you know, filled <laughs> for the next, you know, you're going to have to wait 40 years for that one job to come open. So maybe go do something else, right? Yeah. But the second thing is, I don't think people realize how new widespread education is. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I sent something to Ben this morning that talked about, you know, hey, you know, science literary, literacy is up from 11. And there are scales that can define scientific literacy. Mm -hmm. And the broader population was about 11% or so in 1983. And now like, uh, and I think it was 2019, um, it's like 30 some odd percent. So mm. It's new, right? Like this yeah. widespread education and it's having an impact. I just feel like the stuff that's happening in society is writing an intellectual check for our body politic that we can't quite cash yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I, I'm not sure I'm tracking where, where you're going with the, the very last bit there. Um, I mean, what's well, the idea that we have to think com complexly? Um, oh, if yes. you look at look at um, what people run on, the issues people run on, mm, Afghanistan yeah. coming up is probably going to be an issue for the midterm elections here in the mm -hmm. U.S. But how many people that I talk to in everyday life really understand like foreign policy implications or that there's maybe a difference in like. Oh, wait a second. I have many, many Facebook friends who are foreign policy experts. <laughs> you know, they all have very strong opinions. Yeah. <laughs> um, or let's take a look at the way yeah. discourse goes. You know, Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. comes in as a freshman and all she's doing is the very kind of Trumpian bad social media hate throwing rhetoric that like destroys the public forum because it gets her clicks and tweets and, and people accept it. My view possibly is because they just don't know. Be like, right. you know, but, but we don't even get that far. Right. I mean, when I, when I described our culture a minute ago as, as shallow and surfacey, right. That's exactly the sort of thing I have in mind is that regardless of whether you're looking at the, the political cultural right or the political cultural left in our country, I mean, what we're driven by are the like it's not even sound bites anymore, right? It's it's like it's a it's clickbait headlines and how does this make you feel, right? And if you're if you're a typical sort of red American, certain things get your blood boiling or get you excited, and if you're a typical blue American, then other things, you know, the opposite opposite things do. It's just sloganeering, and it's just, and and the the idea of stopping for a minute, <laughs> right? Um, and actually thinking something through and recognizing that a lot of these issues are genuinely complicated. Um, where is there space for that in our, in our culture? And I think 
it's if we recognize that there's a need for that at a cultural level, then maybe we should also recognize, well, wait a minute, there's this thing we're doing at our colleges and universities, right? This whole humanities thing where what they're at least ostensibly all about is slowing it down, <laughs> looking at what's the actual claim being made. How do we think this through? What are the different perspectives? Maybe there's actually an argument to be made that that we are a people who needs the humanities very badly. Yeah, so I'd like to help, you know, or maybe provide you with the, the platform for making that argument a little bit, because uh, I, I think many people, perhaps if you didn't go through, um, you know, a rigorous humanities education, or maybe it just wasn't a, a central feature of your college experience, um, may not have that have that understanding. So I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, um, how does the human, how might the humanities help us think more deeply? How might it help with things like intelligent public discourse and some of the other issues that you mentioned? Mm. Um, in a number of ways. I mean, there's several things that come to mind, um, but the, the two main ones are these. One is that studying the humanities um, gives a person a certain kind of freedom intellectually. Uh, I'm, I'm indebted to a former colleague down in Alabama. Uh, my, my dean down there is a, a man named Michael Berger, and he used to make this point when he'd talk about the liberal arts. That, that the reason that they're called the liberal arts, right? Think about the etymology there. What's what's liberal, you know? It has to do with liberty, with freedom. Well, why would we call a bunch of academic disciplines the liberal arts? And it's because by engaging in this kind of study where you're really learning how to think, you're really engaging with different perspectives, you acquire a freedom to assess not only other people's perspectives on the world, but also your own, right? In a way that most people don't have. Uh, and I think that that's, among other things, um, not only is it attractive and appealing and a nice way to live, um, but it also has a way of making a person humble, right? I, I've It struck me a few times in recent years um, as I found myself cautious uh, not just for political reasons, but cautious to make you know bold claims on Facebook about stuff that I'm not sure I really know about. And I think that maybe the biggest benefit of going through the, the gauntlet of earning a PhD in philosophy is it made me aware of how much I don't know, right? And it, it, I, I, I realized like, wow, I really had to put some effort in in order to make confident claims of the kind that I'm making in my dissertation, right? Um, and, and that has made me not, you know, uninterested in other questions, but I think a lot more modest and, and, and I think, frankly, more more humble in making claims than I would have been otherwise, um, because things are complicated and difficult. So that's one issue, is that when you, when you really start engaging with the humanities, um, you acquire that sort of individual freedom um, and also a, a deeper ability, a stronger ability to engage um, with multiple viewpoints and understand where different people are coming from with issues. Um, but then the other thing, um, and for me, maybe the biggest one at our time and place in history is the humanities classroom, at least at our public colleges and universities, may be the last place in America where people who have genuinely deep disagreements about what's right and wrong, about what the universe is really like, about how you know our political system should be structured, that those classrooms may be the last place in America where, where people who disagree on that stuff are actually getting together and talking to each other. And it's not a big secret that when these conversations happen face to face, that it's very different from Twitter or Facebook or, or whatever, right? People actually, even if they don't change their minds, even if they don't become even sympathetic to the ideas, they find that folks who disagree with them are still their fellow human beings, right? Uh, and sometimes they're genuinely thoughtful and interesting. And, you know, sometimes it turns out you can be neighbors with those people. And, and, and in especially bizarre cases, you can even be friends with them. It's, a, <laughs> it's an amazing yeah. thing. So yeah. what I'm hearing you say there a little bit, Matt, is that, you know, higher education isn't perhaps as broken as it sometimes is purported to be yeah, uh, by, I, by its many critics. I absolutely agree with that. There, there are certainly people, and in this case, it does um, tend to, to come from the cultural right, uh, the, the notion that's, uh, that our colleges and universities are just this, you know, bastion of, of radical um, progressive leftism. And it's just not the case. I mean, it is true. There's, you know, studies have demonstrated that uh, college university faculty on the whole are more liberal than the average American. Um, but 
you know, I, working in higher ed, and, and I should say here, I'll, I'll make full disclosure, I'm, I'm kind of a politically odd bird myself. Um, I, I'm kind of all over the map, and uh, I don't know if that means I'm just incoherent and bad at thinking through my politics or, or if, if I'm really good at it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who, like, in some of my circles – you know, they they look at me as like the the weirdo lefty, um, and in other circles I run in, I'm like the you know crazy right wing fundamentalist, right? Because I because I do tend to be sort of all over the map. But it's it's given me a perspective, and the reason I bring it up is that um, I think I have some standing to say that even the the most left leaning faculty that I personally know are for the most part pretty committed to making sure that when they're engaging with ideas that they're presenting them in a way that's fair uh, to people who disagree, right? Um, I mean, I, I can think of one example in particular of a uh, a professor I know who's pretty far to the left um, and had this wonderful friendship with a, a student who was pretty far to the right. And, uh, you know, she was, I know that she was one of his favorite students and, and he was one of her favorite professors from talking to each of them uh, separately. And, and I think that sort of thing is far more common in, in American colleges and universities than you would ever think by just looking at kind of the media reports and the sensationalistic stuff that gets gets broadcast out there. Yeah, there's a study on this and it was over a bunch of years looking at like how people leaned politically and the people on that came to school with maybe a rightward bent came a little bit more lefty mm -hmm. and the people on the left became a little bit. <laughs> that's exactly what you yeah. would look for. If the university systems are doing their jobs of challenging people's ideas, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that's that right. You would start that's to right. see people pulling maybe off a dogmatic stance on something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you recently wrote and published a, an essay uh, kind of on these types of topics. Yeah. And we'll post a link to this in the show notes, of course, for our listeners to, t to be able to check it out. I encourage them all to read it in its entirety, but it's called Inquiry as Occupation. And in that essay, you uh, describe um, you know some of these issues as well as uh, a strategy for potentially addressing some contentious issues in the a more of a principled manner. Um, I'm wondering if you could you know talk us through at a high level, some of the ideas that you suggest in that essay. Uh, yeah. So I, gosh, I, I probably should have reviewed it before coming on this, this podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I think I remember, I, it was fairly recent that, that I looked at it. So it, it was a response to a, a longer essay. I, I've been very involved in honors um, uh, education for the last few years. That's actually how I got into administration. I have been just a, a full-time professor um, and then I got super involved with the honors program down at Honor Auburn Montgomery and wound up as the director of that program. And that's how I wound up as a dean up, um, up here in Cleveland. But um, the essay is in the Journal of the National Collegiate Honors Council. And uh, members of NCHC were invited to respond to a longer piece um, that uh, I'm blanking on the title of, but it, um, it it was reflecting on, it was raising some questions about how we approach um, uh, honors education with an eye toward the changes in our society, um, wanting to make sure that we're being appropriately inclusive, that we are engaging uh, with issues of justice, and in particular when it comes to uh, uh, racism and um, equity and things like that. And uh, my uh, my essay was arguing that we need to be careful as educators in how we approach issues like that, that, that we need to make sure that we are drawing a, a clear or we're making a clear distinction between education and indoctrination and that where reasonable people of goodwill um, can um, can disagree on on an issue, uh, that we need to be really careful to be sure that we're not using our um, uh, platform, in particular as professors, to push particular contentious or, or, or partisan or, you know, ideological agendas. Uh, and the reason for that isn't um, in particular, because I'm I'm worried about a specific agenda, um, though there are certainly some agendas out there that worry me more than others. Um, but it's rather because it, it actually circles back to the very first thing we started with: what is a a college or university for? Right? Why do they exist? And in a pluralistic democratic republic like ours, we need a place where people know they can be free to ask hard questions, um, where 
ideas, even very, very unpopular ones, can be discussed and assessed and, and weighed for their merits, right? This is also the argument for, for tenure historically. Um, professors need to know that they aren't going to, you know, there's not going to be a threat to their livelihoods every time um, they say something that might not fit with the majority view at that moment. Um, and colleges and universities are the place where where we have these conversations. And we need to make sure that that, um, that that remains true. And it's not obvious that we're doing a great job. I mean, so a minute ago, you know, I, I said things are not nearly as bad as a lot of the media coverage would suggest. And I emphatically mean that. But that's not to say there's no problems whatsoever, right? There've, there have been other studies done in recent years where we find that a significant percentage, in fact, I think a majority of students report um, self-censoring on issues uh, when it comes to, to religion or cultural matters or, or morality. And these, I mean, these are college students who feel like it's not safe for them to say what they really think, right? And if that continues, and if that gets worse, um, then our, our colleges and universities are going to, to cease to play um, the this crucial function for which they were created and, and that I think we need so badly. Yeah, so two, two thoughts on that. One, if you think a view's really good and you're an educator, right? indoctrination type methodologies will lose out in the end because you're not providing students with the capability to think through and come to that conclusion their own. You got to give them yeah. an operating system, not a dictate, right? You know, so that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. Because eventually somebody who will take the time will debug your programming. Right. And that's how it's that's a feature yeah. of human dis discourse, not a defect. Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Or, or even just like without it being a matter of discourse involving multiple people, just think of kind of normal human psychology. And I, I can't point to a specific study on this, but I've heard versions of this claim in recent years. And it certainly resonates with me and my own experience that when somebody is imposing something on you, you know, you might you sort of you learn your catechism, right? You learn the things you're supposed to say when someone says, you know, someone gives you a prompt and then here's the the acceptable sort of response. You learn how to talk in this sort of setting. Um, but there can be tons of resentment that builds up and people often become more entrenched in the opposing way of thinking um, because it, it, it feels like this hostile thing rather than an invitation to enter in and try to see the world from a, a different point of view. Yeah. So the second thing that I think that's exactly the second thing I think that's really <laughs> important is the steel manning the other side. Yes. I don't see this taken. OK, we're going to break up and yep. two two groups in the class. You take Black Lives Matter stinks and should be banned. Yep. You guys take the yay Black Lives Matter approach. You guys are going to both come up with your best arguments. Mm -hmm. All right. Now you're going to switch sides and go try to improve the other side. The work. You know, these kinds of things that force people to take yeah. the contrarian view and really try to fight and defend it until, I mean, obviously, if you get flat earth versus round earth, that's a hard one, right? But on yeah. some of these more contentious issues, <laughs> I, it's, I think it's really helpful because it allows that kind of dialogue to occur. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the only thing that makes me nervous about that, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of that sort of thing, the only place where where I kind of want to uh, push back a little bit or be cautious about that, um, and it reminds me of a, a few years ago, my kids used to be involved in a, a speech and debate club, uh, and I, I loved the debate side of it um, because it was it was encouraging students to do this, right? Be able to make a case for for these different points of view, whether they held them or not, which is so important. But the danger you run when you get good at that is it all just becomes a game, right? Um, and so I, I think those those kinds of exercises need to be done with care that in such a way that they don't lose the spirit of the humanities, which is, no, at the end of the day, like, I want to have done a better job of, of thinking through how to live my life, right? So my worry becomes when somebody ends up stopping with that exercise, right? So now all they've done is is seen that there's a good argument on the other side, and then they sort of throw up their hands and become a relativist and say, well, I guess nobody's right. You know, I, I guess there's nothing to be said about this. Uh, and of course, that's a pretty unsatis unsatisfying uh, conclusion. Maybe sometimes it's the correct one, but we're too quick to get to it, right? Um, 
So I, I appreciate uh, there's a, an organization at, at Yale University um, that I, I read about a few years ago. Uh, it's a, a debating society. I'm blanking on the specific name of it. But uh, they, I think, were were some of the first to, to really be great with the whole concept of steel manning. Uh, and the rule was you when you were engaged in a, in a debate, you couldn't um, you couldn't make the case for your view until you had articulated and made the case for your opponent's view in terms that they themselves would accept. So like your, your opponent had to give you permission to go on to make your case, which I think is, is a really healthy way to engage with, with hard ideas. Uh, so yeah, very I, similar, Chris, to what you were saying, <laughs> but maybe a little bit different. And, and that approach is something we don't see very frequently in the public discourse about really oh anything. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we see the opposite, which is the straw yeah. man, yep. which is where we attack the the weakest form, perhaps, of someone's argument, or maybe it's not even the argument itself. It's some mischaracterization, oh my, yes. shadow version <laughs> of, of the argument. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if you were watching like the the uh, Democratic primary or the Republican primary and one of the candidates said something like, um, Senator, uh, are you saying this or, or this? Because, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with either, but I, I just want to make sure I'm getting your view right. You know, like That would be the most <laughs> shocking thing. That would be the most scandalous thing since Monica Mon- Michael Lewinsky visited the White House. <laughs> right. Let me let me bring up something that you said there. Right. Because and this was on Medium and there's this lady, L.D. Burnett, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, she says there's no such thing as cancel culture. And the, the argument is it's just culture. There's positive cultural rails that we put on, like kind of a left and right limit to mm-hmm. social discourse, right? And that when yeah. people say, I feel canceled and I can't talk, I think about like that Milo guy who was basically yeah. just a giant online troll. He wasn't right. there trying to make the discourse better. So I, I yeah. don't know. I, I no, don't that's know. A, that's an excellent point. So I do think there's such a thing as cancel culture. Um, I do think that people should notice that it's on the right side of the spectrum as well as the left, right? This is this is sometimes missed. We Usually when people talk about cancel culture, it's it's conservatives who are upset with, with something or other on the left end of the spectrum. Um, it cuts both ways. Define right? cancel um, culture as you see it. Um, I think... I would define it as um, intentional efforts to, um, as we say, deplatform someone, right? And not just individuals, but in particular, to keep certain ideas from being expressed, right? Um, so if we can make a distinction between the person who's speaking and the ideas that are being spoken, right? Um, and if we can make a distinction between, or, or if we can look seriously at what someone's intents are, or their intention is, right? So like, yeah, Milo, and I, I can never remember his last name, is a, a Greek last name, right? But he's, um, he's just a provocateur, right? There's no, he's not trying, like you said, Chris, to advance public dialogue. He's just, try, I think, trying to build a brand and, and make some money. Um, that's speculative. And I, I, if Milo is listening, I do not mean to impugn your good name, sir. Um, but, um, I, that's one thing, but it does seem like there are a lot of contexts where the mere presence of an idea, right. Is, um, is considered reason enough to shout it down. Um, so, let me unpack a little bit what, what I think the right parameters are, because I, I do think there's a, a sensible way that we can approach these sorts of questions. Um, and I actually published a different essay a couple of years ago on this when, when some of these issues were kind of starting to heat up in our culture, um, because sometimes asking questions can feel kind of threatening. So what I would want to suggest is that we recognize that we need a place in our culture, this is, you know, kind of my, my argument for um, the humanities to begin with. We need a place in our culture where people can have serious conversations about real questions. Um, and the boundary, I think, is set by um, whether or not we are able to view our fellow students and faculty 
as genuine peers, right? So this would rule out like overtly racist or sexist ideas. Like if somebody said, hey, I want to talk about, you know, my idea that's, uh, that men are just uh, inherently smarter than women, right? Um, and, uh, you know, or, or even like my idea that, that women that women should not be allowed to get an education, right? Because um, we know there are people in the world who who hold views like that. I think it would be appropriate for us to shut that down and treat that particular claim as being outside, beyond the pale, not merely because it's unfashionable. This, this is, I think, is one of the key things we've got to recognize, is that too quickly when we start drawing these lines, it turns out that the reason we're drawing them where they do is because that's what you and I happen to believe right now, <laughs> right? And it becomes this sort of purely relativistic thing where it's like, well, that's ours, and that's just we're going to draw the line, and it's there, there's nothing deeper to be said. What I want to suggest is a principled basis that says, no, look, the point of a college or a university, at least a public one, right, is to form citizens, among other things. Well, men and women are citizens under the law. That's the reality, right? Um, and the suggestion that we should bar women from from public education is by its very nature contradicting the the purpose, the mission for which the institution exists, right? And I think that gives us a principal basis uh, for drawing the line there and saying that, because now what you're doing, if you're sitting around the table, you know, and, and you have um, this, you know, diverse group of people, you have some of the people essentially saying to others, you don't belong here. You're not really my peer, right? And when we cross that line, that's where, or when we do the Milo stuff, if somebody's just looking to pick a fight, right? If they're just looking to upset people, um, well, we don't have to allow that either, right? Because that's that's not contributing toward uh, this mission of thinking through difficult questions. But I think that as long as the questioning itself is compatible with viewing the other people in the conversation as one's peers, I think that we have to have room for it uh, in our educational institutions. Sure. Now, let me ask you about that peers piece. Yeah. Do, do peers have to have equal civil rights? Yes. Well, yes, is a short answer. Right. And so that, that's where I find it some of it challenging. Like when we integrated schools and stuff, you know, for a while, people wanted to say it's separate but equal. And, mm -hmm. you know, we had to talk about that for a while. But in the meantime, while we settled out that separate but equal wasn't OK, there was a whole group of people who had to sit outside and try to engage as peers when they indeed were not peers. What it is to be a peer is going to be context relative. Um, I uh, I have, you know, some people are my peers as human beings who are not my peers in terms of socioeconomic status, right? Like Bill Gates is not my peer um, in terms of wealth. Um, there are, you know, uh, LeBron James is not is is my peer in terms of our fundamental humanity. Uh, he is not my peer in terms of um, basketball aptitude, right? So when I'm talking about peers in the context of education, what I mean to say is if you and I have both been accepted to study at this particular college, right? Um, then you and I are peers. And my suggestion, my proposal is that when we're, when we're trying to figure out what topics are off the table, it should be constrained by the the mission of the college. It should be constrained by the reason for which the college exists. Um, and that is, if that reason is to form citizens for a pluralistic democratic republic, um, then anything that doesn't imply that someone who's at the table with me should be at a different table, <laughs> should not be at this college or university, as long as I'm not implying that, then it seems like it needs to be open for discussion. And now, again, there are things that people care about. There are things that people care about, and there are things that matter, and that this can be done in ways that are are respectful or ways that are disrespectful. Again, think of the religion example, right? Um, if I'm an atheist and I'm in a philosophy class with an evangelical, um, there are ways that I can be respectful in making the case for atheism. And there are ways that I can be incredibly rude and disrespectful, right? But either way, I'm, I'm defending the position that what this person is about is just wrong, right? And I think that if that can't happen in a college, where can it happen?
I love this because like when I was in college, I studied theology in my undergrad. I did theology historical studies. Mm-hmm. We could fight about everything. Matter <laughs> of fact, I went to a, a, a evangelical school that would bring in some people that we used to play name that heresy during chapel, you know, like <laughs> docetism, second century, you know, those kinds of things, right? And But it was that freedom. I think people don't realize so that freedom requires some discipline of thought. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and you learn that when you study the humanities and these kinds of philosophy of how you conduct a conversation in a better way. But with everyone not going to college and, you know, maybe people needing to read, how do we conduct these rules and the view? Because somebody like, say, Tom Nichols, who wrote The Death of Expertise, might say, listen, you're a moron. You can't even talk to me as a Russia expert. Okay, Mm -hmm. like they'd have some of that. So how do we take those lessons of humanity that, yes, I agree, it would be we're peers in a college setting. But when we're in a broader social context, how do you think we should engage? It's a great question. In one level, it's easy, right? How should we engage is respectfully, right? Um, how do we get people to act respectfully? Um, oh, gosh, I think we're running out of time. I got to go. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, but I think it does bring up a, a, another question. I'd like to bring this back a little bit to the humanities. And you, we talked about how it's valuable for encouraging the type of thought and perhaps the type of conversation that's needed for people to be productive members of society, to be good citizens. Um, and I would also argue good for critical thinking skills in the workplace. Um, you know, but I, I'm also curious to know your take on, hey, like, all right, I buy it. It makes sense. I didn't go through that. I don't have really a humanities education, um, but I'd like to you know, get up to speed as an adult who already has a college degree. Um, what would you say to someone who wanted, found this compelling and said, wow, Dr. Jordan really made some great points here and, and I feel behind. Well, how would you, how would you help them get up to speed? Uh, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. That. Um, I mean, okay. Two things that leap to mind. The, this I'll, I'll start or I'll mention the second one um, and I'll unpack it in a minute, but it's the obvious one, right? Which is to start, you know, reading books and, and doing other humanities type things. And, and I'll, <laughs> there are a few titles that come to mind, um, some things I've been reading lately. But prior to that, uh, and what might not be so obvious, is I think at least if you're a typical 21st century American, you've got to create space in your mind for it, right? I, I don't think you can really do humanities stuff if you're constantly like if your attention is constantly distracted, if you're, if you're constantly moving from one stimulus to another. Um, and so I think one thing you have to do, if it's really something you want to pursue is create more quietness in your life, um, than you, Mm. if you're a typical American probably have. Uh, and that might be something as simple as, you know, scheduling 20 minutes a day that you take a, a walk in nature. Um, I mean that it could be that basic or, um, you know, making sure, that you are putting your phone down at, you know, eight o'clock and you're leaving it in the kitchen and you're not checking it again before you go to bed, right? Um, that, that you carve out places and or times in your life where you're just not, <laughs> you can't get an email, you, you can't check social media. Um, I think that's crucial because we do, you know, our, our minds are um, are malleable, right? They're, they're, they can be, they are shaped by the choices we make and and we do form habits and we do you know our neural pathways get connected in various ways um so i think you have to create room for it in order for it to be a viable possibility um kind of like exercise right and and, and in the same vein it might help to have a, a buddy it might help to have an accountability partner or somebody who's going to embark on this journey with you and say hey you know what are we doing how are we actually proceeding and then there's so many things out there I and mean, there are books like i alluded to a minute ago and there are you know i bet Every public library in the country probably has some kind of, of book club. That can be a great place to start. Um, there are a couple of books that I've read in the last year that I would highly recommend to anybody in this ballpark. One is um, by Alan Jacobs, who's uh, a uh, professor in the Honors College down at Baylor University. And uh, he published a book last year called Breaking Bread with the Dead. 
And uh, that's a, kind of a great intro to some of this kind of stuff. It's actually the third in a, uh, a trilogy that he wrote over the course of about a decade. The, the first two are called uh, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, uh, which obviously resonates with what I was just saying a second ago. Uh, and the second one is called How to Think. They're all excellent. But if somebody was then asking the kind of question you just were, hey, I, I just don't have any background. Where would I start? Breaking Bread with the Dead is excellent. Uh, and maybe even better is a, a recent book by Zena Hitz. That's H-I-T-Z called Lost in Thought, um, subtitled The uh, Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. And uh, those are both excellent books. Um, Jacobs also gives us the idea uh, or the concept in his book of what he calls reading downstream. And what he means by that is because he says, you know, he's this professor, an English professor in an honors college at a big um, and fairly, you know, prestigious university. And he says, people are asking me for like, well, what do I have to read? Like, what are the crucial things to read? And he says, I hate to answer that question because what I love to read might not be what you love to read, might not be what you need. Um, so he says, start with stuff you like and then read upstream. In other words, if you, if you like, you know, like if you like Alan Jacobs as an author, well, you read him and you find that, oh, he really likes, you know, T.S. Eliot or whoever. Um, and then you start reading T.S. Eliot's uh, and then you find, oh, well, Eliot was influenced by this and this. And you, you kept, and I've noticed that happening in my own life where I'm, you know, I'm reasonably well-educated. Um, my education isn't as broad as I'd like it to be. And there's some stuff that I had never really encountered, even now in my mid forties and even working in higher ed, um, but I, I've noticed over the last couple of years, Hey, some of the authors I really love, uh, like, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who, who wrote a lot more than just their, the fantasy literature for which they're so well known. Um, but like, you know, Lewis loved, uh, Dante. I've never read Dante. Right. Um, Actually, I should mention, I saw this. People might want to be, might be interested in this. They're, Baylor, speaking of Alan Jacobs, is doing an online thing this fall. They're calling it 100 Days of Dante, and they're, they're trying to create the world's largest online reading group. Uh, <laughs> and so it's, it's going to be uh, 100 days of reading through uh, the Divine Comedy. Um, I, I believe they're doing all three parts of it. And uh, anyway, you, if you look online for 100 Days of Dante, I think there's a website for it. You can sign up. Yeah. Um, but all of that to say that this idea of, of reading upstream, like read the stuff you like, the thoughtful stuff. Again, it's like exercise, right? Where you need to read stuff that's going to stretch you a little bit. It should be challenging enough that it, you know, it requires something of you, but not so challenging that, that you give up immediately. I think that that's the big mistake people make. Again, like exercise, they go from I'm not doing anything to, okay, I am going to go to the gym five days a week. And I am going to start bench pressing 150 pounds, right? Um, and then they can't do it or they go two days and they miss the third. And they're like, oh, so much for that. People do yeah. the exact same thing when they're trying to cultivate their minds. It's like, no, I'm not reading enough. I'm going to read 100 pages a day or I'm going to read for an hour and a half every night. And that's, if you're not reading at all, you can't do that. Like make it a yeah. goal to read seven minutes five times a week and see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, we are always advocating for, um, you know, various executives that we come across to slow down, to read. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's also something to be said for not always reading uh, nonfiction, right? Because, and yes. that can be, that can be very easy, especially for what, you know, what I do and what Chris does. Wait, we, we're, we're trying to figure out better ways to run organizations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of value even in the fiction. Um, and now it's historical fiction, but, you know, the, a, a novel that I read not too long ago, and it came to mind because you said Dante, it's uh, I read In the First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? Mm. So um, and it's called In the First Circle because that's an allusion to one of the circles of hell. Um, and he's talking about his time in the um, in the gulag in uh, Soviet Union. But uh, fascinating, um, fascinating book. It's a novel, um, but it has it brings to mind so many questions about things like, and of course, maybe my bent as an organizational psychologist is thinking about things like um, the 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 various ways in which human organization mm. enabled and constrained thought. Right, that yeah, was a, yeah. a, a central theme to that entire book. But I, I just I just want to kind of foot stomp on what you're saying there in terms of you know you have to I think this becomes even more important I'll, I'll even say even further as you get more senior in an organization mm -hmm. to more intentionally make time to do these types of things mm -hmm. um, not only to perhaps read but also to reflect on your experiences and maybe even learn from them a little bit. Yeah, no argument here. Um, I, and actually, it circles back to the initial question of kind of what's the value of the humanities. Uh, I. I think the the person who engages with um, with history and as you were just alluding to with to fictional works, right? Um, you can you get 
an encounter with the human psyche uh, and with the ways that that people, whether as individuals or as groups, tend to behave through good literature, that's almost impossible to get anywhere else, right? Like there, there's an interiority that's possible uh, through the form of a novel. They, they've done, you know, I feel like this is the fifth time I said, they've done these studies. I, I should have some footnotes or something. This is not, you know, cutting edge scholarship I'm, I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, my, my teacher's going to, you know, turn this 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 back to me with, where's your bibliography? Um, they've done studies that uh, English majors tend to be more empathetic than um, uh, than the average person. And uh, the argument that's made at any rate is that it's the experience of reading novels, right? Because even even the best films are not going to get you inside somebody's head the way a novel can um, to, to enable you to see the world from this other person's perspective. Uh, and that that can be a training in empathy, um, which is an awfully useful skill for leaders and managers to have. But then more broadly, you know, you can... You read these anecdotes of of business leaders and, and military generals who were, you know, they're reading the history of the Peloponnesian War, right? Or, or even reading, you know, Homer's Odyssey and like, oh, like that's kind of, you know, with, that stuff with Achilles is kind of similar to this problem we're <laughs> facing, you know, in, in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, awesome. So you've provided us with some book rec- recommendations. That's great. Um Anything else on defending the humanities or why people should care about them? And I guess this will maybe you can answer this as you answer this next question that I thought of. So you have a couple, you have, you have a few children, right? You have seven children. (laughs) And (laughs) um, what is your recommendation? I think your oldest is in college now, right? Correct. All right. And so I'm, I'm curious to know, how do you approach talking to them about college education? Oh, wow. Um, The main thing that I've told my kids uh, through the years uh, is you've got to keep as many doors open um, as you can for as long as you can, right? Because very few of us have a clear idea when we are 16, 17, even 20 years old of what exactly (laughs) we want to do with our lives. Part of me wishes that the way we'd set up the system was that everybody was, you know, just went to school through high school and then you're just expected to work until you're 30. And then maybe like years 30 through 35, you could get a stipend to survive and, and go to college and, <laughs> and then pick a career like that. That seems like it might be a, a, a better way to to do things. Um, but leaving things open. Um, second, um, having as clear as possible a sense for what the different options actually are. I think that a lot of people limit their options because they, they only the only careers they can imagine are the ones that they themselves have you know encountered, right? So like a, a disproportionate number of people see themselves becoming teachers, not because they're passionate about education, but because they've known a bunch of teachers. And like that's one of the few jobs where they, they feel like they have some picture of what it actually is, whereas going to business, what, what is that, right? Um, but then more importantly, uh, at least as for purposes of this, this conversation, I think in terms of connecting it to the humanities, the big thing is twofold. So maybe it's two big things. Um, one is recognizing the extraordinary opportunity that the humanities are, right? It's it's such a, a frustrating paradox where the typical college freshman or college student, and I was this way for most of my undergrad, is so annoyed that anybody's making them take these classes, right? I, I mean, again, when I was a professor, this was like my single biggest source of frustration was looking out at a room <laughs> and students just like, like, like visibly angry that I was asking them to think about this, you know, Plato's Republic or, or whatever it was that we were reading. Um, and what's so ironic about that is that for many people throughout history, like the point of accumulating wealth um, was to get to a place in life where instead of just having to figure out where their next meal was coming from, they could actually have leisure in the rich sense of the word. And then that leisure would finally enable them to like do philosophy, <laughs> right? Or to to write and read poetry or to study history, right? Like this, like this lifestyle that, that, that so many freshmen feel like is being thrust on them unwillingly as a punishment is the very lifestyle that many, many thoughtful people have aspired to is like, oh, if I won the lottery, this is what I would do, right? So um, I try to encourage my kids to to think of, think in that, um, and my students as well, I try, but to think in that, that sort of a, 
I guess engage in that paradigm shift, right? Where you you invert the uh, the image so that oh, right, this isn't a punishment. This is a privilege. This is something that most people through history haven't had the chance to do. Um, and then the other part of that uh, that I was alluding to a moment ago is thinking about how to integrate your learning. I mean, one of the biggest problems in higher education in at least the English-speaking world today, and, and many, many people have lamented this for a number of years now, is the um, the, high, the high degree of specialization in higher education, right? So people talk about these educational silos where the English faculty have nothing to do with historians, have nothing to do with the biologists, have nothing to do with the business professors, right? Everybody's in their own little area and there's no sense of integrated learning, of, of, of bringing these pieces into a whole. Um, so I think that's the other big challenge that I would put before my kids or anybody who's who's moving on to higher education is to try to connect the dots, right? Like, what does my biology class have to do with my political science class, have to do with my literature class, right? And look for ways to connect those disciplines instead of treating them as these radically discrete, separable things. Yeah, you know, because the, the problems of the world are... It, by their very nature, interdisciplinary, and mm -hmm. and and yet we segment everything uh, in the education realm. Oftentimes, and that it can be problematic. Yeah. You know, as you were talking though about this idea that we, you know, we seem to be always filling our time and trying to do more things, and we, um, you know, should be moving maybe perhaps towards having a a more thoughtful existence and so forth. I was reminded though of well, while you're talking about that of this letter that um, John Adams wrote to his wife uh, back in May of 1780. And I pulled it up here. And, and in that letter, he said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Mm -hmm. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, way to go, John Adams. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's an interesting commentary on human nature because we yeah. haven't done that. Like, yeah. we don't do that. Yep. And I don't I don't think people know how much, like, you got to read this in an undistracted way because you really need to get the stuff in you. And then you need to take those walks that Matt's talking about. Because I remember I would just have to think about stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, huh. That is like not even one step above where I am intellectually. That's a whole like wall that I need to like go borrow a ladder from somebody to get up on. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, it's just it's that um, <laughs> resistance to any actual thinking. Right. I, I mean, it's it's hard work to think something through. Um, and it's not a habit that it is in any way encouraged um, by our, our culture, including in our schools, right? Even in our schools, we have this way of, um, you know, everything becomes organized around uh, completing tasks, right? Like, like get, get everything on the checklist done. And, you know, that's, that's the point. Um, really interesting book I, I read a few years back, actually quite a few years ago now, but it's called What the Best College Teachers Do. And it started off with this, this problem um, that's generated for educators by human psychology. And I'll, I'll have to kind of give the, you know, the, the mostly uh, apocryphal version of this psychological study, but I know I've got the basic point right, even if the details are wrong. Um, they did this study where they, they invited people in to, uh, um, you know, take a survey and they said, hey, if you complete this survey, it will pay you $5. Um, and they said, by the way, uh, while you're here in the waiting room, the there's these little puzzles here. You know, there's little like things you fidget with to, you know, you try to get the the little squares to, to you know, fit a certain pattern or the get the two little rings unlocked, whatever, right? Th those little things. And so we got these puzzles. Um, for as many of these as you solve, they told some of the people this, for as many of these as you solve, we'll give you another dollar, right? So you can get five bucks for doing the survey. And then for as many of these puzzles you solve, you get another dollar on top of it. Um, and it turned out that the the study had nothing to do with the survey. The survey was was just to get the people in. What they were actually studying was the behavior of the people with respect to the puzzles. So half the people were promised a cash prize for solving puzzles. Half the people were not told anything. They just were told to wait in this room with the puzzles. And uh, the people who 
got money for fix for solving puzzles <laughs> would approach the puzzles with a lot of intensity um, and would would typically solve at least several of them. Um, but then when all was said and done, they they would put the puzzle down and be done with it. The people who were not offered any money to solve the puzzles would um, frequently come back to them. And even in some cases, after they completed the survey, they would come back to the room and sit down and play with the puzzle a little bit more just to see what they could work out of it, right? Um, and what happens is that the point to this little anecdote is that the way our brains work is that we our, our uh, you know reward system can shift its focus. So when you're offered cash for for uh, solving a puzzle, your your motivation switches from the intellectual challenge of solving the puzzle and just figuring that out to the reward of getting the dollar or the five dollars, whatever it was. Well, then you look at how our schools are set up, right? And so even for many students who are intellectually curious, it becomes all about getting that grade at the end of it, right? And the only the only point to anything is getting an A or getting a B and then getting a certain GPA and then getting into a certain college, right? And the actual activity of the college ends up getting completely lost um, and because people are just trying to do the task so they can get the thing that's extrinsically related to it instead of the intrinsically valuable experience. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And uh, this has just been a phenomenal conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, I would like to let you have the last word if you have one. Um, you know, we've talked about the purpose of higher education. We've talked about the humanities and and how valuable they can be for a whole host of reasons. Um, is there anything else that you think you'd like to share with regard to these topics? Well, Ben, that's a that's a great question. Um, I will say, <laughs> if it's okay to circle back to that uh, that initial point that I was making about the humanities helping us to live a, a richer kind of life and giving us a, a certain kind of freedom. Um, there is a quote that I, I brought with me to to this recording because I thought this might come up and. Um, uh, since you've asked if there's anything I'd want to close with, I, I might go with this this line from from C.S. Lewis, uh, who uh, was a professor at Oxford University during World War II. And uh, as one could imagine, if if your country's being bombed by the Nazis, you might start to wonder what's the point of continuing to go to class, right? What's, what's the point of continuing to have a university when we're literally at war uh, here on our island? And so he wrote this essay uh, called On Learning in Wartime. And he has this, this line that I have shared with probably thousands of students through the years at this point. Um, and, and this is the heart of Lewis's argument for why we need to study history. But I think that what he's saying is uh, applicable to the humanities as a whole. Um, here's, here's the passage. He writes, most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present, to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods, and much that seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times, and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. And then uh, he, he goes on, and there's another quote that I sometimes share with the students, but, but maybe that's a, a good note on which to wrap things up. Why, why do the humanities matter? Um, because they put us in a position to live more deeply, to live more richly, to see the world from broader and different perspectives. Um, and if that's not a compelling argument for studying them, I, I don't know what is. <laughs> Well, Matt Jordan, thank you so much for being a guest on the Indigo Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.